Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bike Radar Meets podcast. In this episode, technical writer Seb Stott meets Chris Porter. Chris Porter has been working with suspension, mountain bike design, downhill racing, enduro racing, motorbikes for a long time. And here's the man behind the Geometron brand, as well as Mojo Rising, who work in suspension tuning. This is a very long podcast, but it is very interesting. So we've split it up into two parts, and this is part one. Just be aware that throughout the podcast, there are a few swears. So if you are offended by strong language, you might want to turn off, unfortunately. So here we are. Bike Red, I meet Chris Porter. My name's Seb Stott, and today I'm sitting with Chris Porter in the back of his van, because that's the best place to record a podcast, apparently. <laughs> and um, yeah, so um, a lot of you will have heard of Chris Porter if you're um, mountain bike tech nerds. But um, maybe for those who don't, Chris, do you want to just introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your background in, in mountain bikes? Um, just some guy that I guess couldn't find what he needed years ago and started a little company to try and um, get what I needed from the mountain bikes, um, which turned into a juggernaut that ran out of control, <laughs> ended up with uh, a company employing 30 people when the circumstances have changed um, and now we're back at the smaller niche um, end of the market uh, doing um, a small mountain bike brand called Geometron and distributing a couple of Italian um, suspension companies' brands. Um, so we're back down to just six um sort of uh, passionate individuals in the company and and that's where we are now yeah and as Seb intimated tech nerds might know because I guess we don't just do things by fashion we do things by performance so that sometimes leads us to doing something different to what most of the rest of the industry are doing so yeah so what so when you started um what were the things that you couldn't find? I mean, obviously, a lot of people know you for your 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 work with Geometron and 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 uh, being very outspoken outspoken about bikes being way too short back in the day. Which um, yeah. I think, if you look at how bikes have changed over the last few years, it's kind of been been uh, proved right. <laughs> um, but so so when did that start? And where you, I know you 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 were working on the World Cups for a while to kind of get more out of people's bikes. Is that yeah. where it kind of came? from oh it's probably earlier than that to be honest because um i worked on a motorcycle magazine and uh although i wasn't employed on a technical basis there at the magazine um uh we all rode the bikes we all had to test the bikes and we all had to be capable of um kind of doing second to third gear 100 mile now wheelies if the occasion arised and it always does when you're out riding with mates um so you kind of you're riding the bikes and trying to see the difference between the bikes and trying to compare what works and what doesn't and trying to understand why some things work and some things don't and um 
it was that um, that led me to start downhill racing. Literally, because I couldn't afford to race motorcycles. Um, that was it. Um, I was in, always into bikes, BMX, and riding in the woods, uh, and riding on the local slag heaps as kids. You know, we were always into bikes. Um, the idea of racing bicycles just came back because I saw downhill racing and thought, that looks absolutely amazing. Love the commitment that's required for downhill. When was this? Was this like- oh, it's like early 90s. Yeah. So, so um, like Bulio's era? Or- yeah, I suppose he was l- probably only literally just starting. Yeah. And then when I was seeing the first sort of things, it was, you know, almost uh, Francois Gachet, you know, like real early days. Mm. And uh, But yeah, it it seemed like, there were some really interesting things being done in downhill mountain bike racing, but not being available in the UK. So I just started importing little things and doing little suspension hop-ups for people. Uh, So that was the first thing, you know, we couldn't find. And when you start riding better bikes and bikes got better and we got to the maybe mid to late 90s, maybe even early 2000s, then you start you start realising that the suspension wasn't just the only thing that was holding it back. The shape of the bikes is shit, for want of a better <laughs> word. You know, they were, they were really awful at the time. And when you when you look back at like early days downhill, it almost looks obvious. You're like, oh, yeah. oh hang on, like th- those bikes look look like BMXs nowadays. It, it, but but was that obvious to you straight away coming from motorcycles, which are you know have have had relatively similar geometry for for quite a while compared to bicycles, which have transformed. It, uh, was it obvious, or were you like it uh, t- took a while? It kind of is obvious, isn't it? But you kind of you know without building your own bike, that seems impossibly difficult to do when you're, you know, when you're in your 20s trying to think of a way of not ending up working for the man in the industry. Do you know what I mean? You just, Mm. all I was doing was trying to not have to work for someone else, trying to find a way of working for me. Um, I guess I was always unemployable um, and I just needed something that kept me out of the machine um and the idea of starting to build a bike yeah where does somebody with no money do that you know you can't so it wasn't something that it there was even an option whilst it was whilst it was obvious that the bikes were too small and too weak and if you had a longer bike with tougher components you could surely let the brakes go more it's you know it's not as simple as that is it uh, it took ages for us to actually get a longer bike hang on a sec I think we've got SAS going over yeah right over there <laughs> it's, it's uh, we're, we're on the flight path to yeah. Hereford so uh, yeah. it's, a, it's pink bike yeah. <laughs> It was pink bike. Sabotages. 
Um, it's, it's no, the, the first time I noticed the, the geometry making such a massive difference was we were sponsored by Orange or we were running a downhill team with Orange. It wasn't, you know, it's more of a partnership than a sponsorship. And Orange let us have one of Steve, one of the frames they built for Steve or one of the prototypes, um, Steve Pete, when he was riding for them years ago. And it was quite long. Mm. I think it was, I don't know the uh, metric equivalent, but for the time it was over 49 inch wheelbase. So we'll have to figure that out. Um, maybe we'll do some math okay. in a minute. Yeah. Uh, it was like 1,200, 1,250 mil, something like that. Um, but it was long. Yeah. It was under 63 degrees head angle. And because of, they made a mistake welding it, we had to make a special shock to use it, which mm. is why they offered to, it to us. And we had a lathe and we were able to do that. So we ended up making an eight inch travel, sorry, seven inch travel, um, 63 degree head angle, 335 mil bottom bracket, 1250 mil long bike. Yeah. Out of that, 12, and 12, 49 inches is about 1225 mil. Yeah, yeah. So it was. So that's like uh, over that. So yeah. it was over that. It was. So I can't remember exactly, but but it was amazing. Who liked it? Mm. People who were over six foot liked it, and then when the when the team racers who were under five foot eight rode it. They said, I'm not giving this back. Everybody loved it. Mm. And everybody went faster on it. So that's the start of the idea. That So whenabouts was this? I don't know, actually. I don't know. You'd have to look back at when Orange were making the bikes for Steve. Uh, yeah. It's probably early 2000s, isn't it? Yeah, because Steve Pete was on Orange in 2005. I think 2006 he went to Santa Cruz. So it would have been before then. It's going to be uh, at the very early 2000s then. So mm. probably 2002, yeah. something like that. Was Minara on Orange at the time? Because I think he was on there about 2002-ish. A little bit earlier, I think. So, yeah, but he was, yeah, he was on Orange. Because I saw an interview with, with Ben Cathro. Mm. He was interviewing Greg Minara, and he said that Orange made him a, a prototype, you know, extra long for the time. Yeah. And he didn't get on with it. He said that he, he couldn't get used to it, even though by modern standards, it was still tiny. Who, that, ben, that, so Greg Minar said that. Greg, Greg said so that. So was, right. was there an element of that? Was there an element of people not being ready for it? Because it, it sounds like you're saying that people immediately saw the benefits. Or was that? Um, I think it's always been about head angle. It always has always will be and if you mistake the sizing of a bike um and make a bigger bike without changing the head angle um then you won't get any benefit you just end up with more stretch but without being able to use it the head angle is the most important thing but it's the thing that bicycle manufacturers are most scared of um it's the thing that makes a bicycle turn. Uh, and yet, in most of the 
sort of tech and journalists and um, technical articles, you'll get people will talk negatively about the flop associated with slack head angles. Mm. The flop is the tendency for the bike to steer. The mm. flop is its natural steering position. Yeah. So, so, so to explain, like wheel flop is when, so when you, when you start turning the, the handlebars away from straight ahead, yeah. the, the bike actually drops slightly. It actually lowers. And yeah. in motorbike circles, they call that headstock drop. So it's yeah. the, it's the, so, so that means that when you start steering the head angle, the, sorry, start steering away from dead ahead, mm-hmm. the bike actually, there's a force that wants to exaggerate that turn a little bit to, to a certain extent. And, yeah. and that you feel as wheel flop, particularly when you're, you're climbing and you got, maybe you, you're leaning over the front wheel. Yeah. The, 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 the steering sort of uh, doesn't want to go back to straight ahead. And, and people perceive that as a negative thing when you're climbing sometimes. Yeah. But, but when, you're, when you want the bike to kind of tip into a turn, yeah. it can be a good thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the slacker the head angle, the more it wants to turn. Um, the steeper the head angle, the less it wants to turn. Um, the The difficulty we've got with the bicycle industry is that the the steering happens differently at different speeds, and we do a lot of a lot of a lot of product managers and a lot of people who ride bikes do a lot of deciding what the bike works like at very slow speeds and at very slow speeds you steer very differently mm-hmm. so if you imagine your your center of gravity is between the two contact patches of the tires and it's really easy to keep that center of gravity there by just turning the handlebars because the front contact patch changes position so you can keep yourself balanced imagine doing a track stand and you can kind of move the handlebars to keep yourself in between the two contact patches. In this low-speed scenario, um, you're steering left to go left, and you're steering right to go right. But when you've got more momentum, um, you need to lean the bike to make it turn. So... Anything over, uh, you know, like walking pace or jogging pace, to go right, you're going to need to steer left Mm. to make the bike fall into the right. Mm. Now, so back to where I started with this whole point, that that counter-steering makes it fall to the right so that you can steer the bike to the right and you're banked round the turn like a sort of road race motorcycle racer that's leaned right over we're not leaning as far over on the dirt but you do have to do that to get round the turn without sort of falling over the high side of the bike so back to where we started with this the the steeper the head angle the less impetus there is to steer um the slacker the head angle, the more impetus there is to steer. But there's another factor at play. The further you lean the bike over, the more the side of the front and rear, t- the more the front and rear tires are on their side. Um, so they're steering less 
because you push it down to flat and the wheels are pointing almost in the same direction. As you bring them up, it steers more. You lean, lean less, you steer more. Lean more, you steer less. So there will always be a correct head angle for a certain turn, a certain lean angle, a certain rider style. This is for sure. Um, but if you have a too steep a head angle, you end up keeping the bicycle more upright and steering more with the front contact patch rather than leaning it over and almost skiing the bicycle around the turn with a bit of pressure front and rear. Um, because remember, the rear wheel steers when it's leaned over. It's not if you're upright and you're only turning the front wheel, the rear wheel is still pointed in the wrong direction. So you kind of have to then load the front wheel only to get around the turn. Um, this is really difficult um, when we've, get, we've ended up in we've ended up in a space where nobody can see the hand movements <laughs> in there. But but essentially, if you imagine standing on the side of the bike and pushing down on the crank and leaning the bike over, you'll see that the the further you get onto the side of the tire, the more stable it is, and the the more upright the bike comes, the less stable it is. And this is where the dichotomy of um, uh, sort of mountain bike journalism comes in. If you have to steer the bike upright, it feels really unstable and it feels like it's doing a lot of steering because it's unstable. Um, so, is this with any head angle or particularly no, no, slacker if, head if, angles? If, if you have to keep the bike upright mm. to steer, like uh, let's say we've got a 69 degree head angle cross country bike, then it's going to feel like it's steering a lot. It feels like you're almost, oh, shit, that's, oh, geez, that's a lot going on there. I'm having to control the bike. Um, whereas if you get the bike leaned over in the turn and you're on the side of the tyre, everything calms down in the steering. It becomes more stable. Um, but the journalists that we've had haven't been able to see the difference between these two styles of steering. So although they can see a downhill racer getting round corners okay and managing just fine to get round hairpins, um, the journalists tend to think that steep head angles steer better because this is the space where they've got more concentration left to decide what the bike's doing. At lower speeds, you mean? Yeah. Because when you put someone on a bicycle that doesn't handle very well on a steep downhill, they don't know what's going on with the bike. They're just more worried about not dying. <laughs> and there's not enough, there's literally not enough concentration left to, to understand what's going on with the bikes. So, and for me, that's, the head angle is key. Mm. Everyone is scared of it. Why I don't know. Yeah. So so when the th the thing is though that if you if you slacken a bike out by putting let's say an angle angle set in it, yeah, you will you will 
slacking the head angle and all the all the, the that goes with it you know staring changing the steering geometry yeah but if you slacken a bike that way you're also extending the wheelbase a bit because you're kicking yeah. out the fork a bit yeah and i so so you said that it's not about wheelbase and i think it, i did i think uh, no, i think wheelbase is no wheelbase sorry i did i didn't uh, make myself clear i said it's not about re I didn't say a measurement to reach wheelbase or I just said making bigger bikes and there seems to be a thing at the moment about reach um, and there are even people finding different measurements now so they can measure things differently and make their bikes look bigger than they actually are. But one of the keys, apart from the head angle, if you've got a bike that's too short and you make the head angle slacker, the bike will work better, full stop, and it will be safer. If you get a chance to weld on more wheelbase, then you should do so, um, because the wheelbase gives you room to move around on top of the bike. Um, so one gives you handling, another gives you rider space. And because a bicycle is driven by the rider rather than, you know, if you jump on a motorcycle and you learn how to ride a motorcycle well, there's a certain amount of body English that you can put into the motorcycle to make it work. And body English is a way of describing body movements to weight and unweight the bike and push the bike around. Um, so you can push the pegs, you can push the bars, you can move yourself around, you can lean back, you can let yourself go, you can pull the handlebars, push the handlebars. There's so many ways that you can that you can make your weight change the handling of the bike more so with off-road motorcycles because you're stood up and you've got more room to move around and with a bicycle it's all it's it's not just some it's all because because the rider is you know 80 percent of the mass of the total system yes but also there's no 40 horsepower to also load <laughs> To load the the motorcycle, to load the vehicle, yeah. we don't. Have Although that. there's, um, you could have forty horsepower. Well, you could deceleration. have deceleration. Yes, yeah, can. going through the brakes. Yes, you can, and that's you know that's um, so you can shift, you can shift weight. The most powerful control on a bicycle is the brake, the front brake. It's the most mm. powerful control. Um, the next is the rider input in terms of what I was calling body English mm. and some riders are more dynamic than others but some bikes allow a rider more space to be dynamic than others mm. and that's one of the things I noticed about my riding as soon as we got onto the longer geometrons and we started getting into the really big wheelbases really slack head angles and dynamic progressive suspension i noticed that my riding got more dynamic i was doing things on the trail that i used to see you know riders like will longdon doing 20 years ago um that i couldn't do on those bikes i was not capable of things riding. like what you know just using trail features to gain speed and looking for bits of trail that were off the black line yeah you know looking for things looking for things and making combinations of features on trails and i wasn't doing that 
in the 90s, I was very much a passenger. Um, is that because you're looking further ahead with the longer, longer bike? It's, it's probably a combination of lots of things. Yeah, it's probably, mm. you, you, if you're more confident about what the bike's going to do, you can look further ahead for sure. You can, you can plan ahead. If you have more um, predictable input coming back from the bike... Um, then you can use that, use that to do things on the trails that you wouldn't have been able to do um, as a passenger. Mm. And I think it's also, you know, it's the it's the change from the sort of two hundred mil travel downhill bike to the hundred and sixty mil travel enduro bike. That was it was a big change in how people ride bikes because you become less of a passenger and more of a dynamic element. Um, 200 mil can suck the life out of most riders, um, suck the dynamism out of most riders' legs, apart from probably the tallest and the strongest guys. And you watch the downhill races now, and they tend to be... the. A lot of the races are... I'd say still over suspension to the point where, you know, the smart guys are running their stuff so stiff and so, so, so progressive that they're not using full 200 mil travel anyway. Um, but the guys that are, are relying on the positive trail features and using the trail features to make the bike dynamic. Now, that sounds okay. You're coming down the hill, you see a trail feature. It's a positive trail feature, as in a, a, a compressing face you're looking at. Mm. You load the bike, hit that, and you can use that to clear, I don't know, 30 feet of rocks maybe. That sounds great, but you've lost speed because it's a positive feature. You've yeah, you're, taken you're some... In, you're pushing into an upslope. You've yeah. had taken some of your forward energy and you've sent it upwards. Mm. Now... And that's only because the to 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 literally do that from a flat ground on a two hundred mil bike would mean that you'd fall in the middle of the thirty foot pile of rocks, um, because it would suck so much life out of your legs. So I saw the change really starkly when we started with the EWS racing. Um, you know, you see. Riders like Jerome Clements, right at the beginning of uh, high-level enduro racing, were able to, you know, the, there were old-school riders from downhill racing enduro, and I'm sure Mark Weir won't mind me marking him out as an old-school rider, and Mark was like a bull, and at one particular Trans-Provence, we were all at, me, Jerome, and Mark. Um, Mark won one of the stages, and he was like a bull. It was, but the stage was just boulder field, three kilometers of 30 miles an hour boulder field. And he was just attacking. It was not finesse. And then there was a, a little, um, uh, no, it wasn't little. It was big, a, a big, big descent. We've already done eight minutes of it, probably. Um, and that we're into a dry riverbed 
across a boulder field and then up the other side of this riverbed, probably a five-foot-high vertical bank. And me and someone else were off the bikes and about to walk up, and we hear Jerome behind, so we move out to let him through because, obviously, you know, he's going to walk up there quicker than us. Comes along, he just leans back, hops the whole thing, He's up on the top and pedaling away, and he's still in high gear. And we're both looking at each other, going, "What the, what the, what happened here? This is this is like Danny McCaskill territory. We're not, we we don't even know how to how to approach this. That that kind of riding offers a new possibility of how to get over obstacles, which the downhill bike doesn't. And so, because because it's got basically firmer spring rates because it's got less travel so you can push into the bike and get more back and get get more energy back yes you you haven't used up that travel you haven't used up that energy in eight inches of rebound um it's it's a very different style of riding and i wonder whether um you know we that downhill racing is almost going off into it's almost going off into its own little cul-de-sac. It's may even becoming less relevant because no one can ride them fast apart from, you know, maybe the top two or three guys. So do you think that, so you think that downhill bikes have too much travel, too much, too soft to spring rate to, to be able to ride them dynamically and 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 kind of pump the bike and, and, and lift the bike through things? Yeah, I think the 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 revelation came a few years ago when we realized and this was through spending more time with customers doing the the geometron thing and and doing more custom tuning. We spent more time with customers and then we realized it ca- it came to me, uh, you know, almost in a flash one day. I'm setting the suspension for the rider. I'm not setting it for the bumps anymore. I'm not setting suspension for the obstacles. I'm setting the suspension for the rider because that is the most of the input into the suspension. It's the rider. If the rider can get what he wants in return from the suspension, then he can ride more dynamically and more creatively and the obstacles disappear anyway. if you're a passenger and you have to just sit back, lean back, and point it through the boulders, then you need to set it for the bumps. But that they're, they're two, they're so opposite, you can't do both. Yeah, that you can kind of imagine two opposite strategies. One is, mm. you know, loads of travel, get the suspension to do as much work for you as possible mm-hmm. and hang on. Yeah. The other strategy is like be more like that Jerome Clements mm. analogy where yeah, you yeah. you have a firmer bike um and and you can you can ride it more more dynamically and more more uh, creatively yeah. but it, but is that just to do with, with spring rate and travel or is it also to do with damping and kind of rebound speed like could you have a bit of both worlds by having having a bit more travel but kind of having less damping so that you lose less energy when you push into the bike I think there's a bit of everything, Seb. It's, it, the bicycle is so complicated. Um, everything feeds into everything else. If you change the offset slightly, it changes what the head angle does. It changes what 
you know, the relationship between the front and rear wheel, changes the relationship with the bottom bracket, changes the relationship with the hand position. Every single change you do reflects into all of the other elements of the bicycle. And the difficulty is, it's hard to pinpoint what each one does because you ride it for two minutes and you'll just adapt your body position naturally until you feel comfortable with the change that you made. So it's mm. it's really difficult. It's in a, in a way, performance bicycle handling is probably more complex than performance Formula One. Um, Formula One's really simple because everything's bolted in place. Um, and the track track stays much the same. Like with a with a mountain bike, if you're two inches to the left, you'd hit yeah. a different bump. Yeah. And, and you'd have a different experience, possibly. Like, oh. there's so many variables with mountain biking. But, but the biggest variable is the rider. And, you know, you, we hear a lot in the bicycle industry about finite element analysis. Um, there's no such thing as a finite thing in, in nature, much less with human nature. <laughs> so as soon as you put a human on board, a fairly finite set of geometric geometrical um, numbers, equations, uh, it becomes infinite. So it's really difficult to kind of pinpoint what works. Some things work for some people, other things work for other people. Mm. And that's what we've found by spending more time with customers is that what works for me doesn't necessarily work for you. Mm. <laughs> and that that's that's been, you know, re really humbling in a way because it, it makes you realise you don't know shit. <laughs> You've got to relearn everything every time you try and set up a bike for a customer. And obviously, the the more experience you've got, the more references you've got and you can say oh shit this guy yeah i remember this guy he had a broken ankle too and he didn't he wasn't able to drop that ankle and what did i do that's right i put more compression on the rear so that we could load the front like that and we could do this and so you know you have little things in in the back of your mind of things that you've done in the past but again it might not work for this guy either so you might have to you know think outside the box again yeah, and I think we, I think with bikes, there's also the kind of two rides could be completely different with the same setup, oh. or especially if you you have the kind of I'm always wary of the kind of emperor's new clothes sy syndrome where yeah. you change something and you're like, oh, this will make it do this, and then mm -hmm. you're like, was it actually the thing I changed, or was it my perception of the thing I changed? So there's that going on as well, like when you're dealing with humans. Oh, absolutely, because you can. Yeah, if you've invested £7,000 in your new mountain bike, it's going to be amazing. It has to be. You've invested £7,000 in it. Mm. And I, you know, I wouldn't argue with anyone that said it was. You know, it's, it's mountain bikes are the best thing in the world anyway, obvs. Mm. Um, but you, if you're invested in the change that you made to the mountain bike or the or the new technology that you bolted on, if you're invested in emotionally or financially, then you probably will believe that it's going to be the best thing since sliced bread anyway. Mm. And you'll, if within 15 minutes or so, adapt to it, and you'll be just looking for the positives of that setup. 
because you can change a bicycle randomly and some things will be better. It will be better at some things. You can just do random changes, go and ride it, and you will notice some things it does will be better. Quite a lot of things might be worse, mm. but you'll just look for the positives if you're invested in it. So exactly as you said, you know, it's you just you end up with a sort of a, a testing bias, if you like, that mm. you'll end up thinking it's going to be better. And that's why we we used to do everything with a stopwatch. Mm. Um, and that brought some real big surprises. You, I, one of my favorite um, uh, little stories about testing with a stopwatch is the first time I tried a hybrid setup from 26 to 27 and a half. I completely dodged the whole 29 thing uh, first time round. But I wanted to try 27 and a half, but I didn't have, um, I didn't have the cap, I didn't have the room in the bike I was riding at the time to put in uh, a 27 and a half inch rear wheel. But I did have a hacksaw, so I could cut the brace of the front fork to fit a 27 and a half in the front. So mm. I went out and I was doing back-to-back -back tests in. As you said earlier on, day-to-day -day conditions change. So I put in a few reference runs on the 26. I was up to speed. It's a track I knew really well. And a, a track I had lots of reference times on. And it was a long track as well. So it's So it's not like... You know, I got one corner particularly good or particularly bad, but it was a long track, and um, uh, put in the reference time, and it was a good time. I was really happy with it on the 26. Jump, popped the 27 on, went up, started doing the track, and noticed immediately I was running out of space. I was just it was taking me longer to turn um and i'm not the kind of person that will just push the front to make it turn that's not what i'm interested in i'm interested in leaning the bike over and getting it to so it felt like i'd made a mistake um and i'm trying to ponder that as i'm going down through some of the sort of flowier turns where i've got more space in my mind to understand what's going on and then the next difficult turn i just fell off because my mind's working too hard. I'm, I'm not watching where I'm going, probably. I kick the bike straight, jump back, jump back on and freewheel down. And, and with the thought in my mind, that's it, that's solved then. It's shit. And I just had that in the back of my mind. So I don't have to worry about the rest of the run now. And I just rode down the rest of the run. And almost forgot to click the stopwatch, but... Um, as I went to the through the between the two trees to click the stopwatch where I normally do, looked down and realised I was still five seconds faster than I was before. With the crash, it's like this. This is this is really odd because that felt like I was running outside all of the turns, and it felt like I was struggling to keep it online. And the truth is, the more it turns, the more it slows down. If it's, if it's got an impetus to turn, it's going to slow you down. 
And I just jumped straight back on the bike after readjusting everything that had bent during the crash and went down and put 15 seconds into my time on the 26 wheels. Um, yes, I was running to the edge of the track. And the problem with that is there is no problem. If you're, if you're using the whole turn and straightening the turn out, you're going in a straighter line, you're potentially going faster. And, and that's a, that was a really important lesson because that f- lovely feeling of carves that you get with a small front wheel, that lovely feeling of being able to really drive that contact patch in and carve is a great feeling, but it's not faster. Um, it's not. So do you think you were making up the time in the corners as opposed to the straights? Could- uh, it, would, it would have been making up time uh, everywhere. It would have, and, and if I'd broken it down and done shorter sections, it would have been, it would have probably just asked more questions than answered. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting to change the handling of the bike by that much to the point where I was crashing on it first time out. It was so, so different, mm. but it was still faster. So it, was the bike made slacker by the bigger front wheel, or, or did you compensate for that? Uh, well, it would have been made ever so slightly slacker, probably yeah. half a degree, but it would have already been at something like 63 anyway. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't pushing it into the realms of something that was sort of modern geometry. It was... It was just literally changing the front wheel and probably lifting the head by maybe 10 or 15 millimetres. That's all it was. And no no other changes. Um, Yeah, it was... because so So the reason I asked about the straights and the corners is because sometimes when I've done timing, I, th- I think with timing, you can sometimes read too much into it because yeah. sometimes you, you can go with exactly the same setup and get wildly different times. Yeah. But the, the reason that I find it useful is because sometimes it gives you a new perspective on what you felt subjectively. Mm-hmm. So for example, I did a bike test last year where I had, um, so I, I spent quite a lot of time back to backing the new Scott Ransom, mm-hmm. which has very light damping, lots of travel. Yeah. And the old specialized enduro, which has a lot less travel and quite firm compression damping on that bike. And I remember going down the same run at Bike Park Wales and I was like, you know what? I feel more calm on this specialized, even though it's shorter wheelbase. And I was like, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm kind of in, in more control. I'm looking ahead. So maybe the extra damping is kind of calming down the bike, making it feel less lively and allowing me to look further ahead. Like, oh, I'm quite, I'm kind of surprised by this. It feels quite good. Mm-hmm. But then I looked at the stopwatch and I was going way slower. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the damping was, because that track is not very steep and is super rough. Mm-hmm. It's 50 shades of black. Yeah. I buy Power Wells and I was like, I think, I, so that, that gave me a totally new perspective on the testing. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, so it felt calmer because I was going slower. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. so it, it, took, it took a positive, yeah. uh, subjective experience mm-hmm. into a, a, ne- a negative or at least yeah. neutral overall experience of like, oh, it felt calmer because I was going way slower. Whereas the ransom with like s- much more supple suspension, yeah. we're just carrying way more speed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that is, you know, that's the problem. Um, if you like the dichotomy, we've got, we've got 
the two opposite things to cater for with customers. Um, not every customer, not every rider wants to go racing. Yeah. Um, but so you've got to have both, you know, both sets of experience, understand what it's like to make that mm. car or to feel that damping, to feel the connectivity yeah. versus the stopwatch element. Yeah, but the, the the other thing, so the reason I mentioned that in relation to your anecdote was that mm. maybe you're running wide in the corners because you were going to them faster. Yeah. Uh, so 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 maybe yeah. if you were riding behind a mate at the same speed as you always did, yeah. you wouldn't be running, you'd have a completely different subjective experience. Yeah, I think there's a bit of both. It will be a bit of both because it is always more complicated than it looks on the surface. But essentially, I was... I was not digging the front wheel in in the middle of the turn. It wasn't digging in, it was just bigger. Um, and I was running right to the edge of the turns, like riding on eggshells. Um, so I was carrying more speed in, carrying more speed through, carrying more speed out. Mm. Um, and for lots of different reasons. And trying to pinpoint one reason why is a fool's game, I think, because there's so many overlapping features. And, you know, this idea that um, we'll end up with a perfect mountain bike and development will take us on this linear path up to the top of the pyramid where we will have um, a, perf a perfect mountain bike, perfection will be achieved, and there'll be a spreadsheet somewhere that allows you to put in the settings that suit you on this perfect bike and, and me and rider X and rider Y and rider Z. You know, that's a fallacy. They'll always get better. You know, they'll, they'll, they have to keep on improving. Um, you know, let's, let's talk in a minute about where where you think those improvements will be made. But yeah. first of all, can we go back to what we're talking about? We're talking about downhill bikes and the early two thousands yeah. getting longer. Yeah. So the, th the thing about downhill bikes, unlike trail bikes, is they've been fairly set on around sixty three degrees head angle and maybe two hundred mil of travel for quite a while now. Yeah. Maybe a couple of decades almost. Yeah. But the main difference that downhill bikes have made in that time is that the, the wheelbase has got longer. Yeah. And if you look at footage from, um, uh, for example, to take uh, Ben Cather again, he was riding, he was riding for Orange back in the day. And if you look at the footage for of us? him, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. 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 So he he was riding so far off the bike, off the off the back, yeah. on steep stuff because his center of gravity is like what six foot six or something, yeah. six foot seven. Yeah. Center of gravity is so high. Yeah, and his wheelbase was so small that he was having to get massively off the back in order to keep his center of gravity within the range that was set out by his wheels to stop him yeah. going over the back, the back or going over the front. Over the front. Yeah, so he exactly. was riding in, you know, he was having to adjust his center of mass fore and aft so much to keep it stable and to keep his weight distribution yeah. roughly even, e yeah. even remotely even. Whereas nowadays that bikes have got longer, you you maybe don't have to, you can ride more centrally. Um, but you can also, but you also have more room to move. 
Um, so that gives you more comfort and it gives you so that classic um, Aaron Gwynn riding position from when he actually got on the XL specialised where he's up flat over the bike. He managed to carry that riding position over to the YT as well um, where he was up flat over the bike. His body was flat and parallel with the ground and that allowed his arms and legs to, to work in tandem. Uh, so you've got a lot of amplitude for moving around backwards and forwards on the bike. So he's not having to lean backwards and squat and put too much pressure on his thighs and too much weight on the wheel that's not steering uh, and stretching his arms and losing that amplitude. He's able to keep his body flat and move a lot around the, around the bike backwards and forwards safely within that wheelbase yeah and that's you know that's what you're alluding to the longer wheelbase gives gives the rider the feel of safety of being behind that front contact patch and in front of that rear contact patch mm. and gives you space to move around so i so i think a, a number that's that's not talked about but i think should be talked about is the ratio of the rider's height to the wheelbase yeah. so that kind of gives you your your center of gravity to stability kind of ratio but that and, and Aaron Gwynn not especially tall no. on that XL specialized would have had a a very high wheelbase yeah. to, to height ratio whereas like Ben Cather on that orange would have been totally the yeah. opposite and, and, and the riding style has to adapt quite dramatically for the the two different the two different numbers yeah and and also there's um there are there are other factors involved with that as well I mean as a for instance, I've ridden a lot different types of motorcycles and I ride a lot of enduro motorcycles, quite big, designed for, you know, it's designed, very similar design to most of the motocross bikes that you see riding around the supercross tracks. The the weight distribution and the suspension, there are, there are very subtle differences to that because it's more designed for riding off-road and more blind terrain and they work really well and I was able to get to a, a level ride in those motorcycles that I thought you know maybe I should buy a trials motorcycle and I might be able to ride even more extreme terrain and the truth was I was less able I was able to ride start that sentence again I was able to ride less extreme terrain on the trials bike than on the enduro bike and I should have been able to ride more extreme terrain it's a more capable motorcycle but I didn't have the flexibility to make use of that bike the bike was too small too steep a head angle too close together it was requiring more flexibility of me than I had and on the trial on the enduro motorcycle I was able to stay more in my comfortable hip rotation pocket you know I didn't have that movement it's going to be the same with the bicycle so what you were saying about you know different riders you've got Aaron Gwen you've got Ben Cathro but you could have two Ben Cathros or two riders of the same height of Ben Cathro but one might be more capable of actually riding a shorter mm. steeper bike than the other because of you know, certain aspects of flexibility or body range of movement, all that stuff, everything comes into it. It's so complicated. Yeah, and I think with um, a lot a lot of um, 
top level athletes in particular have cut their teeth and learned to ride mm. on bikes from 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and so I think that is a source of kind of inertia because you know, maybe that anecdote about Greg Minar about yeah. being reluctant to, to go for the longer bike at first is because he had trained himself to ride on that shorter bike with the, the shorter bike riding style. Undoubtedly. Um, although, you know, in recent years, he's obviously adapted to, to ride one of the longest bikes on the circuit. Which is still too small for him. Um, you think so? Yeah, he's, um, I mean, Greg's running a 60 mil stamp. Um, uh, to me, that's, that's too much. He'll have a more rearward roll on the handlebar, so his hand-to-axle position or hand-to-contact patch position won't be that far from someone, let's say, on a 30 mil stem with a forward roll on the handlebar. But um, he's having to roll the bar back because he's spending a lot of time off the back of the bike because that front wheel still isn't far enough away, and he's still got the reach-adjust headset forward so it's still not big enough he's got stackers under the bar he's got the bar shoved forward on a 60 mil stem and he's got the reach adjust headset pointing forward you can't just make another bike for greg if you're invested into carbon fiber molding and um, because it's too expensive but they should just weld in one Here, uh, aluminium yeah just <laughs> yeah. try this greg you know and and he would. He's, you know, he's a very, you know, he's interested in going faster. You know, he's, mm. he, he would, def he's definitely into trying stuff. You know, he's, he's a, an interested, an interesting character. So he would definitely try it, but he's working with what he's got. And, <laughs> you know, that's what he has to do. You work, an artist will use the colors that he's put on his palette and that's the palette that, Greg has got that's the that's the hand he's dealt. So are you predicting that in a couple of years they'll be on longer bikes if if Greg's still racing? Uh, I don't know whether how many more years Greg's got in him um, as as sports technology moves on. Sportsmen have and women have longer careers. Um, we learn more and more about the human body as every year goes past and. You know, we've now got, you know, situations where, you know, you can you can be at the peak of your sport from your late teens, but you can still be pushing the young lads in your early 40s. Um, there's no reason why Greg can't carry on being, um, you know, a pain in the ass to the young guys for a long time yet. But he will need some help. Greg's not the kind of rider to do the Banzai 110% do or die maneuver. Greg wants to stay at 95%. So in order to stay at 95%, he's going to need a bike that works at its peak um, so that he can still beat the guys that are riding the 110% Banzai and 10% of the time it comes off mm. works and they'll do it and they'll stay on the bike but their bikes are at 80 percent, so he'll still beat them mm. so he's going to need to rely more on technology so he's not risking his own neck every weekend um so mm. so that was part one of the bike radar meets chris porter podcast 
We're going to be putting out part two very shortly, so look out for that on your podcast provider. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.